This episode starts off with a short, silly poem I wrote. It talks about Blue Chew, which is something Daniele Bolelli frequently recommends. I'm reading this because I hope that if Daniele listens to this episode, he gets a good laugh from it. If the rest of you do too, great. Please know the rest of this episode hereafter is serious and often incredibly sad. For those unfamiliar with Daniele, he has a strong Italian accent, so I'm going to impersonate him and it as best I can. Okay, so here we go. Even with the name as Italian and sexy as Daniele Bolelli, there are times when my wang might as well be soft as jelly. In such cases, my friends, I highly recommend to you the beauty and power of what the Greek gods call Blue Chew. Blue Chew is a medicine endorsed by me, the crown jewel of Milan, to ensure my Johnson can get and stay hard as a cast iron pan. Because to fulfill the needs of my savanna and for my sanity too, Blue Chew ensures my banana will salute and shoot goo. Despite this conversation being somewhat taboo, I nonetheless recommend finding out if you benefit from the magic of Blue Chew. That's a really terrible impersonation of Daniele. So yeah, so any guys out there that are having issues making your soldier salute, or any women out there that notice that your man's boners can't cut diamond anymore, you might want to look into this. I first learned of Daniele Bolelli through Joe Rogan's podcast. I was impressed by his knowledge and appreciated his good nature. I also learned that he had been through an incredible amount of pain and suffering. If you ask people what their biggest fears are, they probably depend on whether they are single, married, or have kids. For married parents, their biggest fears are likely their spouse or kids dying. The good-natured man I was learning about had already dealt with the death of his wife. A good part of this podcast is devoted to that event and how it changed Daniele. After she died, Daniele was now a single parent responsible for providing for their 19-month-old daughter. I recommend throughout this episode that you consistently ask yourself, how would you have handled what Daniele did, and what kind of person would you be after it? The Rogan episodes he was on led me to listening to his History on Fire podcast. Only within the last six or so months did I find out that he has another podcast called the Drunken Taoist Podcast. Both podcasts bring me a lot of entertainment and value. About a week ago, I started listening to the most recent episode of History on Fire, which discusses the life of a female Russian sniper who killed hundreds of Nazis. Within the first few minutes of it, Daniele mentioned the History Impossible podcast, which I hadn't heard of before. I looked it up, listened to the episode between that podcast's host and Daniele, and realized that it too is another great podcast. That got me thinking about how much value he has brought me and how little I've done showing appreciation of his work. I only recently became a paid luminary supporter, but beyond that, I d- I've done very little. I decided to buy his book, Not Afraid, on fear, heartbreak, raising a baby girl, and cage fighting. I immediately jumped to part two where he discusses how he met his wife and her death. I only planned on reading the first few chapters before going to bed, but I ended up reading the entire part that night. I had tears running down my face often and damn near ugly cried a couple times, which I haven't done in years. This episode is about that book. Don't think his book is not worth getting a copy of simply because you listen to this podcast. Despite how much of it I quote from, there is so much I left out. If my presentation sometimes feels bumpy, it's because I've left out entire chapters. I truly hope that if this episode moves you in any way, you will do your part in getting a copy or somehow showing Daniele your support for sharing his journey. Part 1 is called Sparring with Fear. The book begins with Daniele discussing how he grew up being very afraid of most things and how he overcame or at least learned how to manage fear. I'm skipping much of this part of the book and not because it isn't important. To the contrary, he says the lessons he learned in part one prepared him for what he faces in parts two and three. 
Up to this point, Daniele had done well fighting. However, he soon has a fight that exposes him to a very hard truth. Quote, This is hands down the lowest point of my martial arts career. It is my sixth smoker fight, and in attendance is the biggest audience I have fought in front of so far. The worst part about it is that I know absolutely nothing about my opponent, and this has made it impossible to formulate a strategy. For a control freak like me, this is a hellish punishment. Not knowing simply drives me crazy. The bell rings, and no more than three seconds later, my opponent throws a kick to aim for my head. Reacting by instinct, I immediately shoot in, but he sprawls very well, so I end up in my guard. He hits me with a particularly heavy punch, but I have a surprise waiting for him. I let him pass the half guard just so I can sweep him to end up in a perfect position to finish him with a leg lock. I crank the Achilles lock, and for about 15 seconds, it looks like I have him and he's about to tap, but he manages to work through the pain and escape. We are barely over a minute into the fight, and he has just passed the side control. And this is where something I had never anticipated happens. I just tap out. Not because he has a submission technique on me, not because he is hitting me, not for any seemingly logical reason. I just tap. I tap because I want out of there. I tap because now that my first plan hasn't panned out, my brain just gave up. I tap because I'm a wimp. Next, we talk about what his friend observed from that fight. So, quote, on the phone, a friend tries to break the news to me. He was there. He saw what happened, and he believes he knows what's up. You were simply not a fighter, he tells me. You are an intellectual. You are good with words and shit. Fighters can't a writer lecture or think the way you do, so you can't expect to be as tough as they are. You have plenty of talents, but they are not in fighting. If this is supposed to console me, it fails miserably. Those words, that are meant to help me, hurt more than I have ever been hurt in the ring. And what is even worse is that I can't actually deny what he is saying. I mean, after what I have done, what could I possibly say to deny the obvious truth of his words? It's as if any pride I have ever felt in myself vanished in that second in which my hand tapped the mat. In a sense, my friend is right. I am not a fighter. I am a sensitive little nerd. I cry at movies, and I am scared of my own shadow. But he is also missing the damn point. I am trying to become more than I have been up until now. I don't want to accept my existing limitations as an immutable sentence or some sort of inevitable destiny. I'm tired of being afraid. I'm tired of being intimidated by conflict. I'm tired of shrinking in the face of hardship. And when a horde of demons will burst out of hell screaming my name, they will not be impressed with how well-read I am or with the fact that I am nice, sweet, and have good manners. The only thing that will matter is whether I can take everything they dish out and have any strength left to laugh in their face. This is not just about fighting in the ring or excelling at some sport. If that was it, he'd be right. My energies would be better spent doing something else, since I clearly am not a natural at this game. But fighting for me is directly related to how I think and how I write. It is directly related to what type of husband, friend, and father I can be. This is about forging the heart and guts that I, and everyone I love, can depend on. This is about not always being a hostage of my own fear of death and of life. So my dear friend, thanks for your concern, but fuck off. Next, we talk about a fight that Daniele has after this event and how he redeems himself. So it's a very tough fight. He ends up winning, but he ends up giving it everything he has. And after shaking his opponent's hand, he collapses to the mat for about 20 minutes. So, quote, I'd love to think that through this fight, I turned a corner and heroically defeated the ghosts of fear forever. After all, this is the type of story I've loved in every other martial arts movie ever made. The wimp who faces difficulties but turns himself into a hero through hard work and lives happily ever after. But I know better than that. It's not quite such a straightforward process. Pretending otherwise would be a lie. The truth is that I defeated fear today. Tomorrow, in the same situation, I may not be able to pull it off. I may crumble and get crushed by the pressure. The reality is that we start over from scratch every day. Well, 
maybe not exactly from scratch. Once you have experience facing your weakness and defeating it, it becomes a tiny bit easier to remember how to get there to the next time, but it's very far from guaranteed that you'll live up again to your best moments. My friend Mike V, a true god of pro skateboarding, once told me how he expected that eventually all the fighting, metaphorical or not, would lead to his being able to relax and live beyond conflict. It was only years later that he came to the same conclusion that's now staring me in the face. Fighting against your own weaknesses never ends. The battle begins anew every day. I've skipped a couple chapters, but we're back to another passage about Daniele and dealing with fear. So, quote, My fears in the fighting game, instead, are very noticeable. They scream in my face and try to crush me. I can't just ignore them. I can either make the conscious choice to avoid them, with the accompanying knowledge that I am a coward for letting them defeat me, or I can make the equally conscious choice to do battle with them. Pretending they are not there is not an option. They are far too loud for that. And willingly entering fear's house when the experience is not just unpleasant but downright terrifying makes it much easier for me to face fear in daily life. I mean, am I really not going to face something just because it's uncomfortable after stepping up to fears that nearly rip my heart from my chest? Paradoxically, being so damn scared makes me more prepared to spar with fear in all other aspects of my life. By facing the fear of fighting on a regular basis, I have become more sensitive to fear in general to the point where I am able to tell when it's controlling me even when it's doing so in less obvious ways. And being aware of a problem is the first step to solving it. Next, Daniele talks about, or what we're gonna talk about from the book is how Daniele overcomes some fears. He does that by putting others before him, more or less. Quote, Neither pride nor any other personal motivation ever injected me with the necessary courage to stare down fear. My willpower was strong enough to push me to step into the ring despite terror, but not enough to do so unafraid. Over the years I had tried everything and none of it had worked long term. What had escaped me all along was that, in the end, defeating fear boils down to love. In this case, it wasn't even like Elizabeth's well-being was actually threatened, but just the thought of it was more than enough to switch my mindset because sometimes you can do for those you love what you'd never have the energy to do for yourself. Look at it this way. No one in their right mind would ever casually enter a room where an armed serial killer is on a rampage. Now imagine that the person you love the most is trapped in that very room and suddenly you'd tear down the door to face off against what, until a second earlier, you were running away from. Maybe it's different for other people. Maybe they are braver than me by nature. Or maybe something else does it for them. But for me, the only place from which I can muster courage is the love for those who have given me their heart and soul. As it turns out, a love that nearly hurts because it's so intense is the only force that speaks louder than self-preservation. This is going to be the last part from part one that I read from, but this talks about how Daniele deals with hurt. So, quote, Life's own DNA dictates that you will get hurt over and over again as long as you draw breath. There are no exceptions. Rejection, heartbreak, old age, sickness, and death knock on everybody's door. Similarly, everyone who enters the ring will eventually get mauled. Defeat is not an unfortunate event. Both in combat and in life, defeat is a guarantee. It may show up more or less often, it may take longer than average to find you, but the outcome is never up for debate. Hoka Hei, the Lakota battle cry, is born from this realization. It may seem curious and self-defeatist to enter battle screaming what is usually translated as, quote, today is a good day to die. Why not some kick-ass macho threat instead? Why not some ego-boosting proclaim of your certainty to win? That's because no matter how skilled you become, you are eventually going to lose. And even if you ignore it, the fear of losing, which is the fear of death by another name, will still play a number on you. Hokahei instead acknowledges that you can never fully ensure the outcome of a battle, but rather than letting the prospect of death and defeat freeze you, 
The Lakota warrior embraces his own ultimate lack of control over life and death. Quote, today is a good day to die is the battle cry of those who are not going to stop fighting and giving every last drop of blood they have in their veins until you kill them. Once you've already accepted the possibility of death, what can anyone say to scare you? In training, you are given the chance to learn to keep going through defeat, pain, frustration, and utter lack of control. Even though it may not be the easiest thing in the world to see wonderful opportunities while you're getting punched in the face, this is the most fundamental moment that all of martial arts training is about. Figuring out how to remain undeterred when all hope of a good outcome has already left town. Life eventually kicked my ass, just as it eventually kicks everyone's ass. What I am thankful for is that I was already used to getting my ass kicked, courtesy of the martial arts. Learning how to take a beating without letting it break my spirit was hands down the best lesson I ever gained from the martial arts. So now we're moving on to part two of the book, which is called Life and Death of a Wonderful Human Being. In this part, Daniele talks about first meeting his future wife, and then life as a married couple, and then her death. Here we go. So Daniele met his future wife, Elizabeth, while teaching a martial arts seminar at UCLA. You could tell that he was extremely in love with her, and from all descriptions i mean it was from his perspective it was definitely love at first sight so here's a quote from the book it wasn't just because she was a vision of beauty from a better world something about her energy was mesmerizing she was a sun able to brighten and warm up any room she walked into so like i said you could tell that he was very madly in love with her pretty early on despite the fact that he was an instructor he was very aware of the taboo regarding the student teacher dynamic that isn't supposed to be crossed disregarding that rule Daniele begins courting Elizabeth things are starting to get serious and so Daniele ends up telling her about his views on monogamy and that he thinks it's total bullshit here's a quote from the book just when everything was going right I was the one to throw a wrench into what looked like an impending relationship since we were putting all of our cards on the table, I felt it was only right to inform the woman of my dreams that I thought monogamy was bullshit. I probably phrased it a bit more elegantly and offered my best philosophical defense for open relationships, but basically that was my message. Rather than freaking out and running in the opposite direction, she was very cool about it. Philosophically, she was on board, but she knew herself too well to actually go for it. She knew that if she accepted it, she'd struggle with it the entire time. So, with great honesty... She put the ball back in my court. If that's what you want, I respect it and wish you the best, but not with me. If you want a relationship with me, it's only with me. In other words, you can either follow your philosophy of relationships or you can have me, not both. The choice is yours. I've met a million people who verbally defend the integrity of monogamy only to cheat in actual practice. That was never an option for me. Once I give my word, I never break it, ever for any reason, and so I thought about it long and hard for a full 0.2 seconds before jumping headfirst into it. All I wanted was her, let my philosophical ideas about relationships be damned. In the next chapter, we learn a little bit more about Elizabeth and what kind of upbringing she had. We learn that she was unwilling to compromise on many things and that she was an incredibly tough and in some ways ferocious person. Most of this can be attributed to her childhood or maybe more accurately, how she chose to build herself up after childhood trauma. She grew up in a very physically and psychologically abusive household. At 14, her father matter-of-factly told her that she lived because they didn't have the money to abort her. To some extent, she was also his way of likely never being deported if immigration ever caught him. Her family were immigrants, her father was Chinese, her mother was Taiwanese. What we do learn is that even at a young age, Elizabeth Art had an indomitable will and fighting spirit. As an example of that, one of my favorite stories about her. When she was about four years old or so, her much older and bigger sister got a belt to beat Elizabeth with. 
Most kids would probably run or cry and plead, but Elizabeth picked up her tiny belt and was ready to give as good as she'd got. At 16, she was a ward of the court and never saw her parents again. She developed into a highly independent, polarizing person. She seems to have zero qualms removing anyone that annoyed her from her life. Daniele and Elizabeth eventually move in together, with her having primary say in most household rules. Here's a quote. On paper, it looked like a bad match. Among the many things that made us incompatible, I was a happy puppy who thrived on sharing my house with friends and having people over in a more-than-merrier kind of way. She grew up locking herself in the closet to play with some toys, since that was the only place where she felt safe. Needless to say, this left her with a bit of a heightened sense of privacy. Whereas I loved to share my space, her priority was protecting it. I wanted a tribe, she wanted to be left the fuck alone. Living together was not going to be simple for us. She told me all this right off the bat. She also told me that she survived her upbringing through sheer willpower, but this had left her with a shrunken muscle for compromise. As much as she would have loved to make compromises in our relationship, it was almost certainly not going to be a 50-50 deal. She would accommodate me as much as she could, but it might not be that much. In not so many words, she had to have things her way most of the time. In saying this, she wasn't trying to be mean or to dominate the relationship. She was very matter-of-fact about it. Quote, I have tried to change much about myself, and I have succeeded to some degree, but I think I've hit my limit. I love you, but what you see is what you get. I don't want you to start things under the illusion that one day she'll change, because I probably won't. Either you can accept things as they are, or you should find someone more compatible. Maybe you're thinking that through her being so honest, it took Daniele a long time to process this, but we find out that it didn't take him very long at all. So, quote, And so I jumped into the relationship headfirst. No hesitations, no regrets. I wanted to be with her no matter how tough it would be, no matter how much of a struggle or how painful. I loved her so damn much that I was happy to give up pieces of myself for her. Had anyone else told me the same about their relationship, I'd have thought it was a really bad idea. Others close to me were similarly weirded out. However amazing Elizabeth was, our relationship didn't rest on a healthy foundation. After all, I basically lived my life in constant fear of anything that could possibly piss her off, and I was rarely relaxed since I was always trying to anticipate potential problems and diffuse them before they got under her skin. Blocking anything that could set off her anger kept me always on edge. I saw those dynamics, but I didn't care. I knew all that and still thought it was worth it. More than anything, I wanted to make her happy. Later, Elizabeth and Daniele decide to get married. There's really funny stories regarding that, and I highly recommend reading it. We end up learning that Elizabeth decides she wants to become a doctor, but she never did well in technical classes. To be admitted to med school, she'd have to take an incredible amount of classes, all of which were ones she mostly previously failed. So she did well in the social sciences, but she never did well in any technical classes. She either failed them or dropped them. Well, mathematically, she'd have to do extremely well in those classes as well just to earn a competitive GPA. Daniele tried to tell her that she was more or less setting herself up for failure. Elizabeth wouldn't have any of it. Her first scores came back as Daniele predicted. Mathematically, she wasn't yet doomed, but henceforth she would have to perform almost flawlessly. Through remarkable willpower, she did and was accepted to medical school. And something he talks about way more is just how amazing Elizabeth's will was. I'm, I'm not doing it justice whatsoever. She had an amazing will. Elizabeth and Daniele decide to start a family, and we learn that apparently Daniele wields his Italian sausage like only few can. I only say that because Elizabeth keeps having him take pregnancy tests because she can't believe they got pregnant so quick. What we also learn is that Elizabeth now is in the medical field. And she has issues with most doctors and their stance toward pill pushing as the primary means of providing medical care. As a result of that and what she sees in hospital delivery rooms, 
she decides she's going to have their daughter, Isabella, or Is, at home in a small pool. So there's a, there's a lot of good information about what the pregnancy was like. And the, the book, again, please buy the book. There's just a lot of information I'm skipping over. Here's the day that Elizabeth gives birth. Quote, the midwife arrived in the morning and helped Elizabeth move into a birthing pool we had set up in the living room. And it wasn't long after that I stared into my daughter's eyes for the first time. Most babies born in a hospital are quite groggy, squint their eyes, and look very sleepy. Part of it may have to do with the fact that they have been pumped full of drugs as a result of the epidural given to the mother. Isabella surprised the hell out of me since she had big, open, alert eyes, betraying a high level of awareness of her surroundings. Despite seeing me and two midwives around her, she needed no time to figure out which one was her mom and promptly made clear that she wanted to be in her arms. After a suitable interval, I cut the umbilical cord and enjoyed my turn holding her. And this is where my notoriously verbose self takes a bow out and retires because there truly are no words to describe the emotions that swept through me as I sat down holding my daughter for the first time. So far, things are going really good for them, and they sacrificed a lot to get where they were. He does talk about them having some really serious arguments, but other than that, everything was fine. However, things soon change. Quote, Had I known what was in store for us, the arguments we were having, that I thought were such a big deal at the time they were happening, would have appeared as child's play. A few months later, I would have paid in gold to go back to those days when miscommunication and differing priorities were our biggest problems. Our own personal hell didn't arrive amidst thunder and lightning. No parting of the sky, no riders of the apocalypse coming to announce the end. Nothing earth-shattering. The beginning of the whole thing was so seemingly trivial that we didn't even know that the knock at our door was hell asking to come in. At the very end of the summer, when our daughter turned one year old, Elizabeth woke with a very sore shoulder. That's it. I'm not kidding. Something as mundane as a stupid sore shoulder was literally the opening bell announcing that an ocean of pain was on its way. What we find out is that the shoulder pain only gets worse, and they know that something is seriously wrong when the same pain arrives in her leg on the same side as her sore shoulder. And they find out that testing shows she has brain lesions that are consistent with MS, so multiple sclerosis. As time goes on, the symptoms and complications only intensify. Quote, as difficult as handling all finances and daily practical issues for all of us was, it was nothing compared to how painful it was to deal with the emotional aspect of it all. Try this, for example. At the end of another exhausting day, burning the candle from every conceivable end, I joined her in bed so we could catch at least a few hours of sleep, but tears were flowing freely out of her eyes. As I hugged her close to me, she let out two words that broke my heart. Why me? I looked at her and saw more vulnerability in her face than I had ever seen in the 12 years we had been together. I'm a good person, she insisted between the tears. Why is this happening to me? I'm sure I had been hurt worse other times in my life, but I sure as hell couldn't remember when. Her words, the expression on her face, the feeling of absolute powerlessness we shared, they all crushed my soul. You are a good person, I wanted to tell her, and there is no why. Sometimes there is no rhyme or reason. Sometimes the universe is just fucked up. But I kept my cheerful existential thoughts to myself, hugged her tight, and voiced my belief that somehow, against all logic, we were going to come out all right from this nightmare we were in. We would find out that the symptoms only get worse and they end up back in the emergency room. Ultimately, they find out she likely has a brain tumor and she's admitted to intensive care. They wouldn't be going home anytime soon. Quote, During one of these never-ending days and nights, under the fluorescent hospital lights, it was difficult to tell the difference I saw the patient tag on her wrist, Han, Elizabeth, female, age 36. That's when the realization sunk in that there was a very high chance she wouldn't live to see her 37th birthday. Up until that moment, the trajectory of her life had looked like a poster for the American dream. 
the child of illegal immigrants raised in the midst of poverty and abuse. She had clawed her way out of misery to become a doctor, have a baby, marry someone she loved, and carve for herself some happiness. A true success story of overcoming crazy odds. Except that there would not be any happy ending at the end of the rainbow. No damn American dream, just random death and meaningless tragedy. Ancient Roman philosopher Seneca had it right. We truly are, quote, born into a world in which no quarter is given. Life is deaf to our pleas. Whatever sentimental notion I may have held about living in a universe governed by some sort of justice and fairness evaporated before my eyes. Elizabeth ends up going into surgery and a doctor examines her brain and he eventually comes back and tells them that she has a very large brain tumor and it's likely very aggressive and probably stage four. And based on the location of the tumor, it is inoperable. So after getting that news, here is how Daniele's mindset shifts. Quote, in that instant, my whole focus shifted. Up until that moment, I had been hurting and suffering and praying and hoping. But once all hope was yanked away from me, something in me snapped. In the weeks to come, I'd be by her side constantly, day and night. I had one job and one job only, and that was to make her smile. My own emotions were swept aside because, well, because I wasn't the one fucking dying. They'd only take up energy and focus that I badly needed to direct to her. I'd leave her side for maybe an hour a day to go take a shower at my mom's house. The second I'd leave her room, I'd crumble to pieces and my repressed emotions would come back with a vengeance. They would hit me all of a sudden with renewed intensity. Breathing would be a struggle. I'd cry uncontrollably. Anybody taking a picture of me at the wheel as I was driving the distance from the hospital to the house would have seen a river of tears and a face frozen in a silent scream. Nothing anyone could say or do would make things a tiny bit better. It was hell, but it was hell on a timer. I didn't have the luxury to give in to my grief. Within an hour, I would have to forcibly close the gates of hell and be back by her side. So, right before I went back in the room with her, I'd chase all the heartbreak away, put my game face on, and find a way to smile. Skipping quite a bit. Um, Daniele's talking about how all of his martial arts training really paid off. Here's a quote from the book. Right now, we were going on no sleep, little food, and zero hope. I was seeing a person I adored being taken away from me inch by inch, and I was completely powerless to do anything about it. I wanted to bash my head against the wall. I wanted to escape the present situation. I wanted to avoid it in any way possible. But she couldn't escape it nor avoid it, and so neither would I. All around us were overwhelming emotions threatening our sanity if we gave in to them. We were on a tightrope at the edge of the abyss, one inch in one direction, and we could fall prey to some self-delusional optimism and ridiculous hopes. This would shield us from the pain for the present moment, but set us up for prolonged pain down the road once reality would knock us on our asses. One inch in the other direction, and we would be letting tragedy break us, leaving us open to an invasion of gloom and doom. Neither of these options offered us anything good. So, to hell with both. We were going to go down our own way, finding a way to laugh in the face of death. In the midst of all this, it became obvious to her whatever tension we may have had a few months prior was complete bullshit. She now knew again beyond any doubt that I loved her as much as any human being can love another, and I fully had her back. During one of our interminable sleepless nights, she said so. I told her, quote, I'd rather you hated me, but you were healthy and happy rather than you loving me in these circumstances. But we don't get to have a voice in this, do we? She smiled at me and hugged me. No, my love, we don't. Elizabeth is the kind of person who, when her quality of life starts degrading, she doesn't want to live anymore. And she made that very clear to Daniele when they first got together, and oftentimes she would make him promise that if she were in a highly incapacitated state, that he would let her die. That makes sense as to why whenever they got that diagnosis, she wanted to go home 
She wanted to die at home. She didn't want to die in a hospital. Quote, from the moment when the doctor told us it'd be a miracle if Elizabeth survived longer than another month, I knew what awaited us. She wanted to be able to go out on her own terms without having to languish away one piece at a time, losing bits of her dignity and independence at every step. Bring me home, she told me after the latest night in the hospital. Take me away from the tubes and the needles and the fluorescent lights. I don't want Isabella to visit me in a hospital. Let's go home. She could barely keep her eyes open, but her smile brightened at the thought of returning to her house and smelling the lavender and the rosemary planted outside of our windows. She had already spelled out her wishes to me. She didn't want to die in a hospital among nurses and doctors. She wanted to go back to a place where she had known much happiness, where she had given birth to our daughter, where she felt as good as she could feel anywhere. She wanted to visit and share some laughter with friends and family for a few days, and then she'd die. Despite her wishes, her family didn't want this for her. Her sisters didn't want her to go home to die. They wanted her to stay and seek additional treatment, and they were hoping for a miracle. And so a lot of times she would oblige them just, well, that's just it. She would oblige them. A quote from the book. Not surprisingly, her family kept pushing her toward all sorts of invasive procedures that were the exact opposite of what she wanted. She would feebly protest, but then couldn't bear the sadness in her sister's eyes. And so she'd end up agreeing to their suggestions. Not because she believed any of this could help her, but because she didn't want to be the one to yank their hopes away. Because Daniele knows what her true wishes are, it's driving him insane that she's telling them one thing to make them happy, but him knowing what she really wants. Quote, the clash between what she told me and what she would tell her sisters drove me insane. Knowing how much she just wanted them to let her go, and then seeing her yielding to their plans for aggressive treatment hurt me to the core. It was like watching someone being raped in front of me. But to be truthful, as much as I wanted to blame it on someone else, this was no one's fault but hers. Had she stuck to her guns, they would have had to accept it. The problem was that she cared too much for them, and she'd rather hurt herself than hurt them. Enough pushing, pleading, and badgering would regularly overcome her defenses. With everything going on in Elizabeth's life, Daniele was able to see sides of her he'd never seen before. Her distrust and anger were replaced by incredible kindness, and she was able to accept and give love in ways he'd never seen her do. Despite that, she was understandably dealing with incredibly dark thoughts. So, quote, One of her visitors was a doctor named Jose Camacho, whose practice she had joined a few months earlier. They talked much about death, life, the universe, and everything else. A few hours after he left, I noticed she was unusually upset. Not because the visit had been unpleasant. Quite the contrary, actually. I was in the perfect frame of mind to die, she said. No fear, no worries. I'm mad I missed this chance. The perfect frame of mind to die. I can't even begin to imagine what she was going through. As brave as she was, the awareness that in a few days or weeks she'd be no more must have been overwhelming. I had heard some people voice the opinion that death is harder for those who stay behind to become the prisoners of grief than for those actually dying. Utter and complete bullshit. As horrible as I was feeling then, I wasn't the one seeing my body melting away. I wasn't the one having to abandon everything I held dear. And I wasn't the one looking at my infant daughter knowing I'd never be there to see her grow up. At this point, her sisters are hoping that she'll try chemo and so she agrees. However, she decides to tell her sisters her thoughts on dying and we learn a bit about a legal moral dilemma Elizabeth and Daniele find themselves in. Quote, dying, she told them, is not what I am scared of. What is it then that scares you, they asked. The only thing I am afraid of is disappointing you. I am afraid you'll be mad at me for choosing the path I want. And that's when everything changed. Whatever her sisters thought and wanted until a second earlier melted away. As tears flowed freely from many eyes, everyone rushed to reassure Elizabeth of their love and agreed to support whatever she wanted. I was sure she'd now ask me to help her to go. After all, that's what she had asked me to promise in hypothetical scenarios many, many times before. But she didn't. 
Here's what's going to happen, she told me instead. You are going to give me morphine for pain only in the amount suggested by the doctor. Not a fraction more, not a fraction less. When they allow you to increase the amounts, great. But let's stick exactly to what they say. Hospice care allows the use of morphine, even in relatively heavy amounts, to help terminal patients cope with pain. What no one ever discusses is that strong doses of morphine also speed up the dying process. The hypocrisy of the law about this is infuriating. Euthanasia is not allowed, so you can give increasing amounts of morphine that will contribute to someone's death in a matter of hours or possibly days, but you can't give someone a big shot of morphine all at once that allows the patient to die painlessly in a matter of minutes. We do the latter for our pets, but somehow can't extend the same courtesy to our loved ones among humans. Religious notions about only God decides when a life ends are still prevalent enough as to be law. I have no problem whatsoever with people choosing to hold on to life to the bitter end. It's their body. It's their life. And no one else should choose for them. What I have a serious problem with is when these people can't return the favor and allow other people to choose how they want to die. The imposition of someone's set of moral priorities on everyone else is pure fascism in my eyes, and the idea that now my lady had to think about these kind of issues at the moment she was facing death enraged me. Let the woman deal with the most traumatic experience anyone can deal with however she wants. Any law that interferes with this is a totalitarian perversion. Understandably so, Daniele doesn't give a shit about the law, um, but Elizabeth reminds him that if he goes to jail, he'd be there for Isabella. He knows she was right. He was also amazed at how in her current state, when she could have justifiably been only concerned with herself, she was only thinking about Daniele and Isabella. When the time had come, Daniele begins giving Elizabeth morphine. Quote, Almost 13 years of a relationship together and it came down to this. Me feeding her morphine around the clock, her life slowly ebbing away as we held hands. The whole scene looked eerily ordinary. She lay in bed with her eyes closed. Her sisters and I w were right next to her. A soundtrack she had requested played in the background around the clock. Beautiful music that I'll never be able to listen to again. In the next room, our daughter napped peacefully. When at some point Elizabeth woke up, the only thing she wanted to know was if Isabella was okay. Once she was reassured that she was, she went back to sleep. Per the doctor's instructions, we were supposed to give her drops of liquid morphine under the tongue around the clock. The few moments when I fell asleep next to her in the middle of the night, something in me would wake me up almost exactly 59 minutes later, as if my body were running by some sort of internal clock. The day faded into night and faded into day again. After a while, I no longer had any idea what day it was, but my body somehow kept track of the hour-long cycle Elizabeth was on. Eventually, my mom took our daughter to her house. She didn't really need to be around for the last hours when inevitably heavy emotions would fill the air. Both her sisters were by her bedside every step of the way. The whole experience would break their hearts in the months to come, but in that moment they demonstrated the bravery and strength that Elizabeth needed. Samadhi, a friend of ours who had been Elizabeth's classmate in medical school, came to support us. An act of touching generosity and toughness, since I can't imagine this was either pleasant or easy for her. The whole process was brutal. Morphine side effects can cause somebody to choke on their own saliva and other painful reactions, so we had to constantly be ready to give her other medications to make sure she wouldn't experience any discomfort. As promised, the Tibetan monks came back to chant for her when it became clear that she had started the journey and that she wasn't going to wake up again. And even then, nothing was quick or easy. Many times she took a deep breath and didn't exhale. We'd all look at each other, and just when we thought maybe it was all over, she'd breathe again. At one point, Bella asked Samadhi how much time Elizabeth had left ahead of her. Samadhi told her it'd be at least a few more hours, so Belle took leave to go to the bathroom. This was the first time since the whole long thing had started that neither of her sisters was in the room with us. 
almost as if on cue, my lady took her last breath right there and then as I was holding her hand. To the very end, she was unafraid and ready to go. That concludes part two of the book, and we're going to be moving on to part three, which is answering hopelessness with a defiant smile and raised middle finger. And right off the bat, we learn the importance of gallows humor when Daniele describes paying for Elizabeth's cremation. Quote, The man at the mortuary acted the way you'd expect a man who spent his days dealing with death and grieving relatives to act. Grave, somber, a bit stiff. The general sense of heaviness didn't lighten up when, after going over all the details, with a hint of embarrassment, he passed me the bill for the cremation. Death was apparently an excellent business since there was more digits on this bill than I could count. Not that I cared much at this moment. A high bill wasn't exactly the worst thing in my life those days. So, I opened my wallet and pulled out a quarter, and then a dime, and then another quarter while I began to count out loud the loose change I was digging out. As time passed and the coins began to pile up on the table, I could see a look of panic in the man's eye when he realized that I may be trying to pay him in quarters and dimes. I let him sweat a little more before smiling at him and saying, I'm just fucking with you. I pulled out my checkbook and wrote him a check. The mask of gave impenetrability broke and the man laughed his ass off. I don't get to laugh much in my line of work. Thank you. What I discovered was that gallows humor was my survival strategy. I clung to it as a lifeboat and willed it as a weapon. I didn't know how other people handled unbearable tragedy. Every moment since Elizabeth took her last breath had been a threat to my sanity. Just the night prior to my encounter with Mortuary Man, I had struggled going to sleep in the same bed where Elizabeth had died less than 24 hours earlier. I could still see her body lying there, her face on the pillow next to mine. If I dwelled even a tiny bit on the horror of it all, I could have never slept there again. And aside from the damn bed situation, if in a more general sense I dwelled on the horror of it all, I would have gone to pieces and no longer have been able to function. Remember that their daughter Isabella had been at Daniele's mother's house, and this was the first time she had been home and Daniele's having to break the news to her about her mother being gone. So I want you to really think about how would you tell a 19-month-old they're never going to see their mom again? Here we go. So, quote, The first time Isabella came back home with me after staying at my mother's house for a couple of days, I realized I had a problem. Well, it was pretty clear I already had more than my share of problems, but it dawned on me that I had another one. Ever since she had learned how to walk, Isabella had religiously followed a ritual. After waking up, she'd always walk over to our room to visit Elizabeth in bed and play with her. As soon as she came back from my mom's house, she went back to her ritual, except that now there was no Elizabeth in bed. Worse yet, there was no Elizabeth anywhere, period. At least not on this plane of existence. Iz looked at me puzzled. Now what? How the hell do I handle this? How do I tell a 19-month-old baby that she'll never see her mother again? My own thoughts about death are far from clear. How do I explain it to someone else? Someone who learned how to speak a few words not so long ago. Obviously, this is a very heavy question for him and he does a lot of thinking about how he's going to tell his daughter and ultimately this is how he goes about it so quote the more i thought about it the less i knew what to say so after a while i decided to cut the bullshit and say it exactly as it was i held her in my arms looked her in the eyes and said mama loves you but she died we'll never see her again so you can stop looking for her because she is not coming back i'm not sure how i expected her to respond but she did react as one may imagine a 19 month old to react when being fed a heavy highly complicated concept she appeared distracted i wasn't sure if she even listened or if she understood anything i had said hell even i couldn't fully gasp the meaning of what i had told her but starting the following morning she stopped looking somehow she decided to abruptly quit the ritual that had been part of her daily routine for months 
Maybe she had understood after all. 99% of the time, she dealt with the situation in a way in which I could not possibly hope for anything better. But just when I'd think that maybe she was simply not aware of what had happened, she made it clear that that was not the case. One day, as we were walking around the block, we saw an Asian woman getting into a car 30 yards away. Her hair looked very much like Elizabeth's. Iz took off running and tried to dive in the streets in an effort to stop her, howling as she saw the car drive off. And on a different day, in one of the toughest moments of my entire life, I watched her find Elizabeth's driver's license and spend the rest of the morning holding it, kissing it, and rubbing it on her head because that was the closest thing she had to cuddling with her mom. In the chapters here on out, Daniele ends the chapters with something he calls an Isabella interlude. Well, actually, he calls them an Isabella interludes which are cute stories about Isabella and her observations. I won't read them to you because, as I've already mentioned, I hope you buy this book to read them for yourselves. Daniele had a book contract despite all this going on, and the publishers were willing to push back the date, but like he has said before, when he gives his word, he never breaks it. Daniele finishes writing a book called 50 Things You're Not Supposed to Know About Religion, and he writes a very beautiful foreword to it, individually addressing both Elizabeth and Isabella. It's beautiful, and if you'd like to know what he says, buy this book. There's a chapter in the book called Tupac and the Open Letter to Academia. I was going to read you what he wrote them, but I decided not to. Like I said, I really feel that if you care about anything he's saying, or if you care about Danielle as a person, I think you ought to buy the book, and you should read this for yourself. But basically, it's him lambasting academia and his thoughts on what he feels like academia has become. And I'd like to make it clear, too, that I've skipped a lot of chapters. Daniele talks about dealing with one's mortality and coping with fear. He uses gladiators as examples of people that had to learn to cope well with both mortality and fear. So, quote from 206. But even the 99% of human beings who are not sentenced to fight in the arena or ordered by an evil emperor to slice and dice themselves ultimately have to deal with the same dynamics. Coming to terms with one's mortality is on everyone's agenda eventually. And again, here goes Seneca, quote, He who has learned how to die has learned how not to be a slave. Unless one grapples with the greatest human fear of all, the fear of annihilation, one will always be a slave to one's fears. This fear will stalk them throughout their entire lives, holding them back and inhibiting their ability to live fully. The Stoic attitude didn't promise to make the problems go away and remove death from the horizon. What it encouraged instead was the forging of a spirit that can enjoy every second of a mortal life despite the knowledge that each passing second brings us closer to our demise. Skipping a lot of chapters, next he argues that being truly badass is about being kind to others when the world hasn't been kind to you. Summing it up in the following, quote, Regardless of whether you believe in God or not, regardless of whether you believe in an afterlife or not, Regardless of which particular political philosophy you subscribe to, regardless of skin color, gender, or religious preferences, kindness matters. It improves our collective quality of life. In the words of the great Evan Tanner, quote, one of the ultimate things a human can learn is kindness for their fellow humans. One doesn't have to be fearless to be kind, but if you have learned to walk through hell unfazed, you'll have more power to turn good intentions into meaningful behavior since most of your energy will not be jailed by the demons of your insecurities and weaknesses. In Lakota culture, the virtues of bravery and fortitude are the foundations for wisdom and generosity. Defeating fear allows you to put kindness on steroids. You'll simply have greater strength to bring happiness to those around you. This is what being truly badass is all about in my book. Truly badass is having the strength to be kind when life is not. I see so much hurt in the faces of good people, so much heartbreak. In their eyes, I recognize my own hurt. 
and what I want most of all is to have the strength to take it all away. I know all too well that this is simply impossible, but I still find no greater meaning for taming fear than to develop the tools to take some of the pain away from other living beings. During this time, Daniele's been raising Isabella all on his own, and you can imagine that between him having to work, you can imagine that all of this combined that Daniele loses his temper a couple times. Here's at least one occasion in what he writes about it. Quote, in the months since Elizabeth's death, my priority number one, and probably two, three, and four as well, had been to ensure Iz's happiness. Everything else, including my own emotions, was just petty bullshit. Despite my best intentions, on a regular basis I'd run into moments when all my frustration, tiredness, and pent-up anger would push me past the breaking point and I would snap. And one thing you can always count on is baby's ability to push your buttons. They don't have to be bad babies for that to happen. Even the best will do that. It's part of their job description. Anytime Iz pushed all the right buttons and I blew up, I'd always end up seeing the same thing. I would see pure panic in her eyes because she had seen a monster. And the monster was me. There was simply no excuse for me exposing her to that. I probably had plenty of reasons to be overwhelmed, and the worst I ever did was raise my voice, but still. It's not like I believe you should never raise your voice with a kid. There's a time and a place when that may be the right thing to do, but the way I did it was charged with far too many ugly emotions. Afterwards, I always felt like the worst human in the world. Once, as I was putting her to bed around the time she was a little past two years old, she hugged me, looked me in the eyes, and said, You are such a good dada. Considering there were many moments when I felt like anything but a good father, her words moved me to the core. She made me take a real hard good look at myself and strengthened my determination to fight my demons with every last ounce of energy I had. She deserved nothing less. My case may have been slightly different from others, but in a way everyone is fighting the same battle every single day. It's the battle that the best part of us fights against our selfishness, weakness, and meanness. It's the battle we try to live as the best human you are capable of being. Whenever you lose that battle, and everyone at some point loses, it's easy to get cynical and want to bury our heads in the sand so as not to have to constantly struggle anymore. Being the hero of your own life is damn hard work, and giving up can look appealing whenever we slip and fall short of our ideals. But the people who will pay the price for our failure are those closest to us. What I want to next talk about is Daniele mentioning that it has been a long time since he has felt the touch of a woman. He finds himself in a situation where he wants it, but is still too emotionally compromised to be able to be in a relationship, but doesn't want to contribute to the darkest aspects of the sex for money industry. He also says he isn't into one night stands or casual sex because they frequently become complicated and at least one party ends up hurt. Regardless of what he decides to do, don't think this was an easy decision for him. He begins the chapter talking about how taboo and alien the concept of hiring a sex worker is to him and how worried he is about being judged. All I ask is that you keep an open mind and judge not lest ye be judged. He did a ton of research regarding this. He wanted to find somebody that he for sure knew was doing this voluntarily. He did not take this lightly. Quote, It appealed to me that I wouldn't be messing with anyone's emotions. I simply hate the weird games people play in order to get sex or the way in which sex is used as a bargaining chip. Most of all, I hate the idea of people approaching sex with different expectations and someone walking away emotionally wounded as a result. The sex for money equation almost felt more honest. There would be no lies, no illusion, no one getting hurt. This was probably destined to remain a theoretical exercise since every last sin I had was going into taking care of bills, except that just as I was grappling with these thoughts, a friend mailed me some money as a gift. The gift came with a condition attached to it though. The money was his contribution to my mental health. This was not to be used to pay bills or take care of any other practical worry. 
It was not to be spent on anything but something that would give me a brief vacation from the brutal intensity of my current life. In the go for it now, ask questions later approach that characterized my decision making at the time, I started looking into it. One thing I knew for sure was that I wanted no part in the exploitative, nasty conditions often attached to the sex for money business. No street prostitution, no intermediaries taking most of the money from the women, and no one making decisions for them. As my homework would reveal, this wasn't as impossible to find as I had been conditioned to think. In plenty of cases, the sex for money business is abusive and degrading, but in just as plenty, it's not. A lady in that business I once chatted with told me she had a successful day job, spoke five languages, and had graduated in anthropology from UCLA. She screened her clients very carefully and rejected more than she accepted. Sex work for her was a form of fun dating while making bank in the process. Clearly, this was not the norm of the business, but stories like this were less rare than I had imagined. After enough digging around in an underworld that apparently existed everywhere around me without me ever noticing, I ran into something that fit my criteria and decided to take the plunge. After spending time with her, he talks about how unawkward the whole experience is and the lady starts asking him about his life. He didn't plan on talking about such things, but he says if, you know, she really wants to talk about it, he's willing to tell her. He tells her and she hands him his money back saying that he needs it more than she does, but he won't accept it. They politely argue for a while and settle on going 50-50. He then goes into his thoughts about whether his future was going to be repeatedly going to sex workers. Quote, Now that I had sworn off relationships, was this going to be my future? Would I return to the comforts of ladies for hire again and again? It could have turned out that way, but something that my friend Aubrey Marcus told me stirred me in a different direction. I was explaining to him how I wasn't planning on pursuing any relationships. Not just now when the emotions were still fresh, but even in the foreseeable future. I told him I dreaded the possibility of bringing a woman into my life, of the relationship eventually ending, and of my having to tell my daughter, sorry that this other female figure you have grown incredibly attached to has also disappeared out of your life and you'll never see her again. I truly thought that I was doing the right thing to protect her. Aubrey replied with a few poignant words that made me do an instant 180. Quote, you don't hurt kids just by what you expose them to, he said. You also hurt them by what you don't expose them to. If you never let your daughter see in front of her the example of a loving relationship, you'll not be doing her a favor. When a man is right, a man is right. This didn't mean I was going to rush into anything. Not only was I not ready, but I never again wanted to have to modify who I was for the sake of fitting into a relationship. The only plausible scenario would be one in which I could be 100% the person I wanted to be. My standards would remain insanely high, and any woman would have to accept that my daughter was the center of my life. The odds were that I wouldn't find something like this easily just across the street, but the possibility was back on the table. I'm about to read the entire last chapter of the book. The reason why I'm doing this is because I feel that if you have gotten this far, most of you still probably won't buy the book. But I still feel like this message is really strong, and even though I don't know Daniele, I feel like he would rather people hear this part than not hear it. Quote, if this book had followed the linear course that literary agents love, the arc of the story would have taken me from being a scared wimp to transforming myself into the kind of man who knows neither fear nor doubts. A few pages before the end, I should have slayed the dragon, saved the day, and ridden off into the sunset. Too bad that my life is not a Disney story and I don't want to sell it as such. I am certainly less prone to be fear slave than I used to be, but I still have my moments when my insecurities clutch my soul and I revert for a little while to being what I was. The times when I am able to silence all insecurities and KO fear, though, always coincide with being able to adopt a particular state of mind. Since you have been a most gracious reader, and I deeply appreciate your sticking with me to the end of this book, I'll try to capture it for you in as few words as possible. Here we go. 
In the beginning was fear, the fear that everything that has a body experiences once it realizes we live in a predatory universe, a universe in which absolutely everything gets to be eaten, if not by the sharp fangs of a predator, then by time itself. And fear became our god, and it began to rule over our lives, shrink our willingness to dare, and rob us of the beauty of it all. Fear is written in the deepest layer of our DNA. You can't run away from it. You can't escape it. It's so pervasive that plenty of people try to exercise the demon. Religions, philosophies, advertisements, motivational speakers, they all tell you that if you make the jump and follow their cure, you'll no longer have anything to fear. They tell you that there are no monsters hiding under your bed. They promise you safety from everything you fear. They promise you a sense of empowerment. They promise you victory against all odds. The reality is that they are trying to sell you something. The monster is indeed under your bed after all. The reality is that you have every good reason to be afraid because everything you fear is on your tracks right now and will eventually catch up to you and destroy everything you loved and everything you are. Welcome to the world, motherfuckers. So why not afraid? Wouldn't it be more appropriate to call the book scared shitless and rightfully so? Because being scared doesn't help you. Reality is uglier and harsher than anything we like to admit to ourselves, and yet it's pointless to be scared since your fear will not protect you. Fear is only useful if it alerts you of a danger you can avoid, but if there's no possible way to avoid it, if it's inevitable that it'll crush you no matter how hard you fight, then what's the point of being afraid? If you have no hope of survival, what's left to be afraid of? The only thing you'll succeed in doing is spoiling this very second when the forces that will destroy you haven't stepped onto the stage yet. Yes, you will not get out of here alive, but so what? All the more reason to celebrate right here and right now. Let's pop the champagne before all hell breaks loose. Squeeze every last ounce of orgasmic ecstasy from the present moment. And when the monster finally climbs out from under the bed, at least you'll have a good reason to smile before he devours you. You are already dead. Let's have a party in the meantime. I know I've said it several times before, but I really want to reiterate that I left out huge parts of this book that are very important. There are a lot of lessons that I didn't discuss, and I hope that by now, if you are interested in Daniele Bellelli or if you've already known about him, that you have a better appreciation for him and that you will show him some sort of support. I hope that by now you have a much better understanding of Daniele Bellelli. He's not just the history podcast guy. He's not just someone with an amusing Italian accent. Daniele, thank you for all the value you've added to my life through your work and sharing your story. I hope that if any of us ever have to go through what you have, that we can come out of it half as well as you did.